0: Today's program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Welcome to Chef's Story. I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton and today our chef is John Besh from Louisiana. Um, we're taping actually today at the International Culinary Center and John, I'm just so excited that you're here. If you don't know John, uh, you have to go down to New Orleans because he has the restaurants that people lust after. Uh, probably the most famous is August, but he also has Beche Steak, Luc, Luc San Antonio, La Provence, American Sector, Soda Shop, Dominica and Bornea. Bornea? Is that
2: Born. the name?
1: Born. Yeah. Okay. Well uh,
2: you know it's at and it's right. out,
1: you're, and you you extend outside of New Orleans too, right? Uh, but John also um, is, uh, of course, he was one of um, Food & Wine's t- Top Ten Best New Chefs in America. He's won the James Beard Award for Best Chef in the Southeast in 2006. 2009, he got the Silver Spoon Award from Food Arts. Um, his restaurant August is in the Gaio Top 40 Restaurants, the Wine Enthusiast Top 100 Restaurants. You know, he's one of those guys who just... Uh, He wins it all, and he defines uh, New Orleans and the South, and we're just going to delve right into it. So you are (laughs) from Louisiana, are you not? I am from Louisiana. (laughs) Okay. Well, so and did you grow up? You born and raised in New Orleans? I grew
2: up in the country outside of uh, New Orleans, just right down the literally right down the road from where it is not street but road from where it is that I live now and so um really on this I live on the same bayou that I grew up on and it really um and I never thinking I would return home of course every kid I think leaves their hometown thinking um that you're just done with it but that wasn't really the case you know I, I left and each time I left the I the city kept calling me back and Okay, wait, wait,
1: wait. So you grew up on the bayou?
2: Grew up out in the country.
1: Out in the country,
2: hunting, fishing, cooking. Tell
1: me, and what did
2: you? What life. were you
1: eating at five years old? The
2: what, same what? thing that I eat now, really. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the beauty of of having this indigenous cuisine of, of the New Orleans area. And outside of like eyes shot from uh, New Orleans, the cuisine changes drastically. And so it's um, growing up. Eating and cooking with the seasons which is just normal. Um, shrimp season—you ate a lot of shrimp. You only eat crawfish within crawfish season. A season so, for oh yeah, so shrimp season begins uh, in May and then um, basically carries through through the fall, and then it'll close down once quotas reached and reopen again in May. And um, crawfish, same thing. The crawfish um, really come in the season. Around New Year's, and then uh, by July the crawfish are finished. And so you, you, know, you, growing up eating with the season and eating what the earth actually provides you, um, cooking in a style that um, has historical significance, I think just kind of it formed me into what I've become today. And that that's just a preservationist, but um, I think it, it it gave me the uh, the foundation that I'd need to pursue being a chef later in life. And I think we always hear about these, you know, we were talking about, um, chef Soltner and Sayak and uh, Jacques Pepin and all these great chefs that came from France, or for that matter, the great ones that came from Italy or Spain, Mm -hmm. um, all came from incredibly rich food backgrounds. You know, whether it's peasant food or not, there was a historical significance and there was a story behind their food. um, and and I think the same goes for some of us, you know, in and around New Orleans, where we grew up with a okay, really yeah, identifiable right. food.
1: So New Orleans as the city, is, you know, has got four or five cultures, you know, very strong cultures there. But you grew up outside the city. Explain for a New, to a New Yorker, what's the difference, you know, uh, with Cajun? Is it Creole? Uh, right. Louisiana. So you have, tell tell me, and where do you fit in that mix? What's
2: well, a great. That's a very good question, because um, you do have this whole Cajun thing, and you have the Creole thing. And where the, where the two really split, or that Cajun would be the country cousin to Creole. Cajun is the one-pot cooking um, from southwest Louisiana, or west to southwest Louisiana, where um, just outside of New Orleans, you head to the west, and you're in rice country. You're in, um, this is where sugar cane and rice kind of come from. And that style of cooking has, um, it was very much a, a peasant based style of, of, of food where um, it was the Acadians that actually were kicked out of Nova Scotia. We, we all know the history of, of that. They come to Louisiana, they take these old French traditions, including their language, which really had been kept in this time capsule for uh, 200 years. And brought it to a very remote part of Louisiana, where they settled, and uh, started cooking what was indigenous to that area. And so they adapted their old French recipes. Um, the étouffées would then become crawfish étouffées, uh, mm. because you had you know the crawfish and, and the rice and so on and so forth. Well, Creole is a whole different animal. Creole, as we call New Orleans Creole. It's really this um beautiful mixture. Almost you could say it's a it's a uh cultural gumbo, so to speak, of um of French and Spanish and African and German and Italian, um all thrown into this pot. And because New Orleans is a port city and a very important port to the to the states and even to you know, before it became part of the Union, uh strategically speaking very important being at the mouth of the mississippi river where it empties into the gulf of mexico and so you always had a, a very cosmopolitan feel in any port city but new orleans in particular and so you had uh, new orleans with had the only sizable population that um you could in in that area um
1: there when a it was being traded cultural group with a yeah, well, the the, the, the
2: French, the, the French owned it, and then it was ceded to Spain. Then the Spain didn't, the Spanish really didn't have um, the means of populating it. They conscripted all these uh, Canary Islanders to, to they had no choice. They would pack these people up and ship them off to Louisiana. And so they're various. And then various, yeah,
1: the Acadia, Acadians and, come in. And there. then the
2: Acadians come in, but they really stayed out of New Orleans. And New Orleans was really populated with um, French, with a. Uh, you some French, and then you had the, the Canary Islanders. You had the indigenous people, that um, the Native Americans that had been there prior, and then you have in you you have all these uh, Africans coming, um, both free and enslaved uh, peoples coming, and, and so it was really. You had so many things happening, but and they, they were still all learning to live together. And they still had yeah. not the population to really um, to populate New Orleans mm. in a sustainable manner. So they mm. go out and they sell these land bonds to um, all these Germans. They bring um, Alsatians and um, Alsatians.
1: could well A lot of people
2: from Alsace <laughs> and at that part of time it would have been a more you know, mm. German leaning, and then you had a lot of people from Baden-Württemberg uh, that were brought over, mm. and so whole villages, uh, Catholic and Jewish alike, make their way on these ships to um, to New Orleans, and it's a real struggle. And but it, the interesting thing is, is that what you had in New Orleans, you had this idea that you had to assimilate into this uh, Franco-Creole culture that existed there, because the French founded it, and, and even though the Spanish might have owned it. Uh, for a period of time, it was still dominated by French culture, and so everything was given a French name. And so, when people immigrated there, as opposed to Ellis Island, you you come there and then your your name you use certainly French- started yeah you were francified French- where it, you <laughs> then uh, the volts became false and you then um, ah. beshes would lose s c h's and just become s h or c h as in the French. I was Bech. wondering how you and so you like had all these different cultures that kind of uh, that came together to assimilate into this Creole culture that existed there Mm. and um, and really I, I think you could the even the Americans really hadn't a huge impact on New Orleans until after the uh, Civil War, when you you had a lot of um, oh,
1: really. So it was very international with those. Absolutely, because it always been I think right. Was
2: very, and so you always had, but it, it, it had been just geographically and politically speaking, um, on this on its own little island, hmm. and um, so um, far removed from the rest of. You know the, the American population, that, it- and I think there was a sense of lawlessness. <laughs> and I think that still exists. Th- this idea still exists today, which I, it's a very intriguing place to come from um, because there is, a, you know, there's a story about everything, and um, what I find more intriguing is that we've actually kept these uh, traditions alive. They've somehow survived when so much of our um, indigenous, you know. Um, Urban cultures in America have just really been eroded mm. by um, this idea of Americanism, and um, which nothing's wrong with. But mm-hmm. I, for the sake of preservation, I'm glad that we. Um, had been uh, considerably isolated I, in New Orleans. I, you
1: know, New Orleans is New Orleans. You don't think of it as a southern city like Charleston right, or right. You know, Atlanta. Or it's New Orleans. It's like New York. You don't and think of it as a new northern city. You just No, think it's new right. York. It, it's in a category and so, of its right. own. It's and a,
2: it has got. It has a grittiness yeah. of a New York or a Chicago, but it's still a small
1: so city. So you were growing up in this world. You don't know anything different. Right. All right. So when did the world expose itself to you and but i'm still like where where are your first food memories how do they my 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 food
2: memories were born very early from um and they really were born out of hunting and fishing in that uh, we went to fish then mom we would bring the fish home mom would cook the fish if there was no black and red fish then it was you catch a red fish then you would want to keep a red fish that was only, you know, large enough to fit into mom's big pot, that that would then become a whole roasted or, you know, a whole braised redfish that we call redfish couvion. But I had no idea. At the time, I thought it meant it was named after the couvions that live next door to us. So I thought that we were just eating like their recipe. But uh, so, you know, you catch a redfish, you had redfish couvion. Or so I thought. It was actually corbeillon yeah. en français. And then uh, you, I'd catch a speckled trout. Then the speckled trout would become um, trout mignard. If Mom had some almonds on hand, it would be trout almondine. And and so it was just—it was that simple. This is how, if you caught this fish, this is how it was like.
1: Heck yeah, no, and I'm not trout (laughs) mignard.
2: And I'm not complaining because, (laughs) but this was just what we knew, and this is how I I grew up. And you know the, um, and so you live by you know we. We certainly didn't grow up having to hunt and fish for our food. We weren't, you know, hunters and gatherers. We had grocery stores, but you know, this is just this was part of that culture. And I think it gave me, from a very early age, um, I developed uh, maybe an abnormal understanding of where food comes from and this connection to it. And Mm -hmm. so I think it was that I think gave me. it was through the hunting and fishing that it what developed was a respect. Oh, the thing
1: you would eat, Oh, we, we,
2: I wouldn't consider anything weird, but you know, we would hunt well, we rabbits and squirrels, and squirrels. you would cook them. Mm-hmm. Just and you, know, you cook a squirrel the same way that you cook a rabbit, mm-hmm. um, and it would normally be in a sauce pecan, or a um, or in some sort of a, a, a stew a squirrel? or a dough. Yeah, like? it's like a sweet tasting rabbit. It's oh. Really, not much different than than a real rabbit, which is, isn't like the white meat rabbit that we might buy in Chinatown just down the street, but has a little more flavor when they're um, wild. And so that kind of, there was a foundation there. Another significant thing that happened when I was little, my father was hit by a drunk driver while bicycling one day and paralyzed for life. And throughout this convalescence that ensued for heck, I don't know, two or three years, he was in and out of rehabilitation, um, at various hospitals. I'd cook for him, and I'd cook whatever I would concoct, and it would make him happy. And I learned so. Nine years old, I made the connection of food meaning, you know, that was food made people happy. And I could, I had a gift of making people happy through food. And I also had a, I, had a, an attachment to going out and finding and you know, and, and bringing the food in from the wild cooking it make you know is made me happy made other people happy i'm in love with this and so i knew probably it took me meeting paul Perdome when i was at a his first book signing maybe i was 11 years old and had this you know bigger than life literally this man just signed the cookbook to me and take a few minutes just to talk to me and i knew at that point like i want to be a chef do
1: you remember the conversation
2: Oh, yeah. No, I remember what, the what? bookstore and the whole nine yards. And mm-hmm. I, I told him that I, too, loved to, um, loved to cook. And he asked me what I'd like to cook. And, and he started talking. You know, and, and he had a... Maybe it was also the first adult conversation that somebody would actually have with me, where here I am talking to this world-famous chef. And I, I think he had been on the cover of Time magazine that year. Like, this was big stuff. Yeah. And then to... Um, have him take the time to say well what do you like to cook and I tell him about hunting you know like I love to hunt rabbits and then this is what we do with them and he just thought that was great this is what he grew up on and so having him take the time um, probably no more than you know three to five minutes to chat with me made made a huge impression and um, that was something that really stuck with me for a while
1: all right, well, we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about um, where you went with it. So Excellent. We'll be right back.
0: The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 potato chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit RT11.com.
1: Story, and I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today's guest is John Besh from New Orleans. Um, most famous restaurant probably is August, and there's nine others, I think, or nine in total, <laughs> and in how many states? Uh, are you in Texas?
2: Just, uh, we have one in Texas. Texas yeah. yeah, all
1: right. So, uh, we're just talking, we just finished talking about um, John meeting Paul Prudhomme and at 11, getting in- inspired and already cooking. Uh, so, how did you start your professional uh
2: I grew up um, again working in uh, restaurants and bussing tables in New Orleans
1: in, or in your Actually area? in
2: Slidell, out, um, maybe 30 minutes from downtown New Orleans um, to the east uh, to the east northeast. And um having you know, just kind of bitten I was bitten by the the restaurant bug early and that I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed bussing tables. I enjoyed um, coming in early and prepping in the kitchen before having to put on my clip-on bow tie and head out into the dining room. And that, I thought, just, you know, that was pleasurable. I really enjoyed the interaction with people and the, the, the idea of food bringing people together. And, and again, everybody's happy. So I, I say that because these things really just would just pop out at me. Like, you know what, this is fun this isn't work you know I, I, I get paid for this and I get to eat all I want <laughs> and so and um, so I grew up just passionate about that and cooking and um, I also was blessed to have parents that like we had to work it wasn't it's really so different than the way that I'm raising my own children. (laughs) I might need to rethink this, but I grew up with a work ethic and that has served me very well in in this career in particular. Well, okay, I knew in high school that I wanted to go to culinary school, but hey, nobody was doing that when I was in high school. This was not a common thing. Even as uh, popular as chefs were in New Orleans, um, most of them were European. And you know, or um, lived extensively in Europe at, before coming back home, and so I thought, well, you know, before I do that, before I venture off to culinary school or to, to move to Europe to to learn my craft, so to speak, um, I'll just join the Marine Corps, and so I did that on a whim, and had so many terrible meals. We joined Marines <laughs> on a whim. <laughs> well. It had so many terrible meals that I just knew I had to one day get back. And I think that when I finally got back to cooking, um, it, my time in the Marines, just as a, you know, in the infantry, as a um, uh, Ford observer and having experiences in, in battle and war gave me, I think, a vision and gave me... Um, I think the drive that I needed to really kick start my career in the way that it did.
1: Let's, let's explore the military a little bit, because I know here at the school, the, the students we get from the military are among the best performing, it, it, you know, and you have the brigade system you know,
2: for oh, a sure, scoffier, absolutely. for
1: a general, in, the, in do you think, because um, there's so many of our military coming back to Well, we head.
2: chefs really love structure, yeah. period, yeah. and you have to. The structure of a kitchen is no different than the structure of um, a military brigade for that matter and um, the style of management is really no different and yeah I I see a lot of, I I work with a lot of um, wounded warriors for that matter and several of which have been very interested in um, the culinary arts and we work with them on placement Okay, so how are you going to do this and let's figure this out together Um, as well as we have returning vets that have seen my story and are inspired by that, and decide that you know they'll go that same route. They'll and nothing makes me happier than when I see these young men returning from uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, and then they're in our, they're in our kitchens and they're the best. They're the are leaders they, they because really are, so. there's a perspective. And you, there's a perspective so what, what did that
1: the you military give you. that well, you hey, carry into the kitchen.
2: The what the Marines gave me was a sense of. An understanding of mission, of what the mission is, in doing whatever you need to do to complete the mission. And so, if the mission in this case as as a cook is to set your station and to be ready to serve the guest and to serve them flawlessly, then understanding that mission allows you to prioritize everything in your day within the scope of what your station has happens to be and you can apply that as, as a chef today I still my mission is um, really to inspire my chefs to inspire their cooks to um, inspire the customer and, and our and the guests each and every night in our restaurants and I that it's a philosophy of um, prioritizing and not getting um, too distracted by all the bells and whistles and really simplifying um your approach to um what would otherwise be you know rather kind of nitpicky and arduous So the process.
1: organizational skills and the strategic skills that you yeah. learn in the military really do apply in the kitchen
2: and absolutely I think, and, and that's I think why they,
1: they're so good
2: and i think they apply to every facet of life mm-hmm. but in the kitchen i think that's a, it's a it's a, an environment that we're comfortable with because of the structure right. that's there. Right. And so I, I my, my father was a fighter pilot and I thought, um, that that was the route I wanted to go, you know, mm-hmm. just to prove I could be as good as dad. And then I, you know, to be honest, I, I loved the Marine Corps, had a great time, uh, have friendships that will last forever through that experience. But I knew I wasn't, this isn't what I'm called to do forever. You know, I, let me do my time, let me get out, and let me make a difference. So and I is, can do that through food.
1: So as soon as you got out, what did you do? Go for a good meal.
2: As <laughs> soon as I got out, I, um, I wanted to come home so bad just to... Um, where were you? I uh, flew into Camp Lejeune, uh, North Carolina. and. Um, where,
1: where, where were you?
2: I, I actually, before I, I was at Culinary Institute of America, I was going to school... I'd already been active duty, then switched to the reserves so that I could go to school. And I was halfway through school when I got pulled out for a year, year and a half to go to um, to go to the first school War. And at that time I thought, uh, heck, you know, I've worked so hard to get here. Now I'm here. And um, now I'm going to die somewhere in a desert, never really accomplishing anything. And um, so and I, I really thought that. I thought, well, okay, I'm... This is, this is how it's got to be, then I'll just give it my best shot. And so, lo and behold, I make it back, I'm fine. And um, I came back with so much determination that I wanted to see this through. I knew I had something to offer the world other than to die in a <laughs> alone in the desert. And, and, and so that experience really gave me perspective. And that's the perspective that a lot of our young cooks coming from the military today have. That they've seen other parts of this world that they don't want to go back to and they realize you know what's really important here and so um, but the first thing that I did was I had to get back home and during this time this is before email and all that good stuff there's no texting um, I had a pen pal during the conflict which happened to be my best friend's sister and she and I, who grew up together but never, you know, we would never think about it, we ended up um, falling in love. And I, three months later, I'm proposing marriage and she says yes. Oh, and and so, anyway, so she'll probably have a different story. It's probably not so <laughs> wonderful, you know, marrying a chef. But, um, but it was really interesting that, you know, I knew at that moment I had to get back, I had to go home. Um, the first thing that I had when I got back was a fried soft-shell crab po' boy with, like, doused in hot sauce with <laughs> shredded lettuce and slathered in uh, blue-plate mayonnaise. <laughs> like, I knew what I wanted. That was that. And I ate, and I just bathed in gumbos and étouffées and all these things that I thought were slightly passé were the very things that I was craving.
1: Mm.
2: So I come back to school, finish school, but I still knew that even though I wanted to be home, I needed to I still needed to leave again. Foundation. I needed to I needed to build that foundation and um so applied everywhere to I got had a job offer in, from Le Gavruge in London and then um uh, had a job offer from um in France. Those um I wanted to work for the um for Gros in France, or to go uh, and work in uh, for the Rue brothers in London, and I couldn't get papers to work in either one of those places. <laughs> right. And I didn't come from money, and so I was going to have to pay my own way, and um, so there was really no way of doing that. So I ended up going um, I through family connections and friends that knew of this great place in the um mountains of the black forest on the france switzerland and um germany border mm-hmm. and i worked at this uh, two-star michelin restaurant called the um Hormantik hotel spielweg which has been in business Did since you have
1: white asparagus oh uh, we had white asparagus that's like
2: oh. sparglesite you know, yeah the asparagus season oh. takes on like uh you know almost a spiritual proportions there <laughs> and um but and so i that i had this incredible food which um and but i was really what i was really m- mostly affected by was this understanding of localism and this balance that existed there and that's existed there for centuries of eating from the season what was of the sea of the area and um of in cooking in a way that was culturally significant. And again it's making me think of, wow, I had this back home. It was just a little different. But um in that idea of localism was something that was a seed that was planted there. And yeah, you know, we had um on the west coast Alice Waters was just really starting um you know I think her critical claim was really on the rise at that point. And we also had um You know, um, Larry Forgione on the on the East Coast that you know was really doing this right, and so that's that those these things were percolating on both coasts. I go and I discover this up through this apprenticeship, and so I'm working there for about a year and a half, and then I um, um, came back and um, started working in New Orleans again. Started working for. A chef out in the country, he a little um, Frenchman by the name of Constantine Karagiorgio, a Greek name, French guy from Marseille, and um, which only if you're familiar with the area, of the uh, Boucheron and you know, the cultural makeup of that area, could you understand the Greek thing, uh, the, the Greek connection. But uh, Marseille is just you know this entire region is just populated by. People, maybe, uh, they're a little Italian, they're a little Spanish, they're a little Greek, and yet they're all 100% French. And so he owned this little restaurant. Marseille, it,
1: Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
2: No, this is Marseille, Marseille France. France. And he settled, he came <laughs> from France, settled in Louisiana.
1: Oh, And so I started, Spanish, Greek.
2: And oh, so his he background. Okay. his background was that of Marseille. Mm. And then, so he comes and he opens this beautiful little restaurant, really um, two bayous over from like where I grew up. And so like out in the sticks. And a beautiful little place, but he decides that, you know, I have this experience in Germany and it's great and it's very classical, but... I need to learn how to cook like the French grandmother, so to speak, and so each summer, he has me spend my summers and I'm working for friends of his in France, and I'm cooking with his brother, and we're um, raking in mussels in Port Saint-Louis, and then we're and he sends me on this um, you know, truly like a, a culinary um, field trip. field trip, where I'm
1: experiencing experiencing these
2: different things that yeah. he wants me to see
1: mm-hmm.
2: well um, and that led to and I, I could do this because I'd get paid every year to go to the Chateau de Monco and send Baol sur says France and I would spend the summer there cooking. And I would also have time to travel around. So my wife and I would pack up and take our little son Brendan. I think the first time he went, he was ten days old. Oh my gosh! We're we're off to France. Your wife does have her own
1: story. Oh, she's got a story.
2: And so, um, make a long story short, just through those subsequent years of doing that, I really developed a a love and passion for that. You know, for the for the food of um, Provence, which. is so similar to the food of Louisiana. Really? And yeah, everything wow. from the rice culture that That's exists true, there yeah. to the, the identity, uh, you know, the, the game, the seafood, all found, um, aren't you know, it's really quite similar. Uh, outside of, of course, gumbo does not exist anywhere in Provence, but um, the idea of, of um, you know, cooking with what you have the idea of localism, the idea of cooking things with you know that are significant to a culture, um, again, that really um, played a role in de- my development of who am I as a cook and who will I be one day as a chef? And so years later, um, you know I'm back, I have my own restaurants. I'm opening restaurant August uh, and, and I'm driven at that point by really just pride. I'm driven to be the best and have my name um, you know, associated with awards and I I wanted to create food that nobody could pronounce and very few (laughs) people could, you know, uh really identify because, you know, it was architectural and it had to be just um I was cooking just so out of pride that I really lost touch with, you know, why is it that I became a cook to begin with? And it really in the restaurant took off and that was great but there was still something missing and then Hurricane Katrina came which just changed everything
1: okay we're going to take a break here because now we're going to go to Post Katrina when we come back chef story, Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today I'm interviewing John Besh from New Orleans with his nine restaurants, probably one of the most lauded restaurants in the country, his restaurant August. And we're just talking about how he started that, and we're getting into the big New Orleans story of Katrina. Tell me about that.
2: Well, you know, I, I, I speak about having left New Orleans from time to time and always feeling this draw back. and on my journey discovering things about my own culture that I had always taken for granted or hadn't really discovered on my own and this was the first time that the city was really taken from me and I, I, I see this whole thing unraveling um, see the misery that existed and I thought to myself just like everybody does when you see a a tragedy like this. Um, what can I do? What am, you know, why am I here? My life has to be more than just about a a fancy award or James Beard award or um, to have this plaque hanging on the wall.
1: And by that time you had won those.
2: And I, I had a lot of critical acclaim and I was the chef in New Orleans and blah, blah, blah. Right. And not that I was unhappy, but I was unhappy. I, because that's not what brains, that's... That alone does not do it. Um, the, I think a human spirit needs. When you said you
1: were unhappy, were you unhappy when Katrina hit, or before, or were you unfulfilled? I think I was unfulfilled, unfulfilled. Unfulfilled
2: would be a better, better way of putting it, because I, I just felt like um, I have a lot more to offer than what I am actually doing. Like just fancy food alone isn't enough, and so um, it took Katrina. It took just two days after the storm of figuring out what we're going to do and how we're going to, you know, like, how are we going to make a difference? How am I? And what, you know, I was given these gifts for a reason. And how am I going to use these, you know, this talent that I have? And um, and I'm thinking, you know, like, I'm only a cook. Like, when it comes down to it, I am I can't, I can solve very few problems in this world. I cook for a living. And it hit me that there's hungry people out there. And, that, and I have resources. And I have friends with resources. And I can marshal resources that most people um, couldn't hope to, uh, um, to secure. And so we started this effort. It was myself, um, everybody else we sent away. I made sure my family left early, you know, leave. And I was... Alone with um, one of my best friends now, and one of my, you know, a a, a partner of mine who's now my chef at Dominica, um, Alan Shaya, who um, originally from Tel Aviv had no, uh, he had nowhere to go. And so it was me and Alan living in my uh, beaten up Land Rover Defender and with his two cats. And so, So and he and I kind of figured out my house was actually okay the we were in the process of we had already been sunk by one hurricane and we were building another house at the time that had some trees through it but it wasn't um, it wasn't but completely flooded but why were you flooded.
1: living in the you couldn't live in the house unit. that's why you're living in the
2: car and so well I couldn't get to the house and so oh. it's kind of stuck in between um, New Orleans and and my home I see and where do we you know, and so basically for, a, for the first two days we're out Just kind of like it literally in the car out of gas, like wondering what the heck are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And so, but it's interesting that that hitting that low and seeing and understanding that like New Orleans is gone, it is done. And people are, you know, there's so many people out there that need help. What am I going to do? And that lit a fire. Um, and the, we started alan was there by my side and we literally started cooking red beans and rice in my front yard on uh, what we call crawfish pots these big you know like uh, cauldrons uh, over propane you know these big pots over these little uh, propane tanks and we started this process of just cooking uh, red beans and rice 24 hours a day and we would uh, cook the red beans, cook the rice, pour them both together in these big igloo ice chests, put them into uh, boats, take the boats out and feed people um, in these flat bottom boats. Um, and You could actually take the boat and there was a roundabout way of getting into like the really poorly uh, you know, the hard hit areas of New Orleans where you're just on the interstate and the exit ramps would serve as boat ramps. And you could the exit ramps would just um, really kind of let you down. It just uh, the the streets were flooded, so you just launch your boat right there and go out. And you and so we started these feeding missions. Um, the first guy that I fed um, and I've told the story a number of times, but it still hits me as being that was really the point that I realized I was doing something good. Argues with me about how bad my red beans are and how. <laughs> How his mother's red beans are better and where's the salt pork because his mom always used the salt pork and then did I have any hot sauce and I'm like dude are you serious like I'm in the same situation as you like we've got nothing but you know you're eating your vegetarian red beans today and you're going to be happy with it and I knew at that point like yeah this is a really cool city like we could have this conversation about whose red beans are better at a time of uh utter disaster right. and um so it's really interesting that this what started as a good deed um and you know we've fed people until there were no more people to fed then uh, to feed rather i'm sorry and then we have national guard troops coming in from all around the country but they have no food there no, nobody's really thought this went through and so they're needing food and so we've um, then created a couple of different little lights. Like, you working
1: out of your home? At, out I
2: started out, out of the home and then we moved to the restaurant where we had a secure place there and then we had, we set up several different feeding points and cooking points. One of them being, I'll never forget, a Walmart parking lot um, in, in um, the St. Thomas neighborhood of uh, New Orleans, which was just in chaos. You know, we had Police were just trying to manage what was taking place. Buildings were on fire. The city is absolutely um, drowning.
1: Where are you getting the red beans? And And, uh, so
2: we're pulling from people in Southwest Louisiana. Started shuttling red beans over. Former Marine friends of mine, one of them being a rice (laughs) farmer in um, in Arkansas, started sending uh, you know over a ton of rice um and just all these different people just again pulling the resources that we had wouldn't find a way there were no everything was lawless and so you just broke the law you just invented your own laws and this kind of this tenacity i think that i really borrowed from the marines and understanding that combat everything's chaos and that that's where mission and having the focus and uh, uh, what doing whatever you have to do to achieve that mission really came in handy here because this was like, "Okay, I know what to do here i'm not waiting for permission, but we're just going to act, and we're going to act with a good heart and, and everything's going to be okay and This went on for uh weeks and then then the oil companies needed to get the um their refineries up and running and so the i so we were basically the only people there at the time, and so we were able, able to land some contracts by feeding uh, the oil companies, which we are happy to charge.
1: Yes, <laughs> yes, so, yes, No, I was going to say the economic impact on, on, uh, on the city was as devastating as the, the physical impact oh, on the Oh, good gosh, and, yeah. And well, it's it, more long-lasting, in fact. Yeah,
2: and everything was just completely shut down. And so that's when it hit me that I'm not just the chef, and I'm not just feeding people who are hungry. Now I need to be the employer, like to be an employer there 's a responsibility there that people need jobs, and yes. that if I can arrange these contracts, I can give people jobs. so we started but what do we do? We have no people which just myself, and at that point my um, one of my my only have one business partner at this point he's he w- used to be the major d and I was the cook, and now he 's my um uh, <laughs> he's acting sous-chef slash CFO, and we have nobody. So we start this thing, and this is the first time. Uh, was, cell phones don't work, but what we learn how to do is text. You could text, but you couldn't talk. Oh. And so we started sending text out of, if you can make it back, whenever you can make it back, we will house you, we will feed you, and we will pay you for all the lost time but you're only getting paid for all that lost time if you come back. Oh. And so people started coming in. People needed jobs. They yeah. needed money. Because yeah. they they were going to their ATMs and there was nothing. Right. And they were
1: And a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. So most people, people do. do. <laughs> yeah. And so you know, you don't work, you don't eat.
2: And yeah. so that's when it hit me that I have another responsibility and that is to truly be a good and just employer. And uh, to offer something that that we all need, and we started doing that, and then we started sharing the profits that we were making. So all of a sudden, one of my cooks that came, the first cook that came back, or one of the one of them, you know, they were getting bonuses of ten and fifteen thousand whenever we would kind of have a little extra to share. And one of you know, and, and eventually we, when we divided it all. Then they were seeing money like they've never seen before. And it wasn't that they were working for me for the money, but it was the idea of I didn't think we were going to last. I thought I would definitely be bankrupt. I just paid off my last partner, took out a huge loan to buy the restaurant just before the storm. And so I thought, I'm a goner, but we're going to go down in style. We're going to go down taking care of everybody that is here, bailing us out. And lo and behold, we ended up making it. And, um, And so we're doing these mass catering contracts. And then we're also focused on, um, at the same time, reopening August. And I wanted August to, you know, we're not going to use paper plates. We're not, you know, this is a place that people, I want people to come and escape what's happening in their lives. And it really became a cornerstone. Within the community of a place, an act of defiance was to go out and have a nice meal. When you came back, to to discover your house totally uh, uh, consumed by floodwaters, and so people, as they would come back in, we would see them, and everybody would come into August. I didn't even have a bartender. the The drinks are there, right down, whatever. Wow. And so there was an honor system. So then people started. Prominent people within the community would just come and say, "You know what? I'm going to tend bar for you on." Friday, and another person would say, "I'll I'll be your bartender on Saturday." We can't continue this. Other, you know, uh, beautiful ladies that felt like you know uh, this connection with August all of a sudden would say, "You know what? I want to be your hostess tonight." And that the people just come in, and so then it started taking on this really communal, just a, a almost spiritual. Are um,
1: you feeling fulfilled?
2: I was then starting to feel. <laughs> Uh, Very vulnerable, but I felt like there is a purpose to what it is that I do. And it is, it's bigger than me. And I think that um, discovering just how important food is, and that it's that common thread that keeps us all, that links us together. And it's also that which we celebrate everything. If you think of even every major religion has this altar, which is a table. The people come, you know, th- this is, it's it, like, the, the food is such a powerful tool, mm. um, and, and it can be used for so many, For it can be used for good, and I fe- found that out, and that's what really ha- has been driving me ever since, is fe- trying to find the good in it, and how can we make a difference through so food?
1: We don't have a lot of time, actually, we're going to go over today, because <laughs> you have to tell um, about your your efforts
2: now, what you're doing and how you're transforming lives? Well, I thought uh, hitting this all-time low after Hurricane Katrina, and then um, that really made me think about the vulnerability of this culture, and this culture is bigger than just a chef, and when I say culture, I I talk about growing up in a food culture, where uh, in a significant culture. Uh, shaped who who it is that I am and how I cook and how I th- even think about food, um, and when I see, you know, I remember just seeing the Talking Heads, the political pundits on uh, TV, both sides of the aisle, curious or discussing whether or not New Orleans should be reinvested in or rebuilt, and I and yet, and I look at it and think like these were federal levies that failed us. These aren't. This isn't these you know people of new orleans you know this is we didn't ask for this we didn't bring it upon ourselves and um this is a great place with really good people and this incredible culture how can you say you know how could one even ponder the the, the, you're
1: going to abandon it right
2: that you might abandon uh, the one i probably i would dare to say the most american of all cultures Comes from there because this is a place that truly absorbed people from all over um, in creating its its indigenous, um, you know, the the, the, the Creole um, culture Harmony, that we think
1: of. De- a new this is
2: where our music came from. Right. Made its ways through the highways and byways and waterways throughout the arteries of this country that gave us um, the blues, blues, that gave us jazz, that gave us rock and roll, that gave us Motown. Yeah. Um, this is the food that whether any inner city calls it soul food but it's just food to us and so how you know like this is a really significant place the only way that we're going to get back on our feet is if we all work together and that's where this idea of localism really came into play how am I going to protect our culture well first I need to make sure that we're protecting you know what agriculture is left uh, and that we um, protect our fisheries and we Talk about and we raise money and awareness for um, rebuilding the wetlands that we're losing at an astronomical rate. Not due to ourselves, but again, the federal government has you know the Corps of Engineers was really fouled up. A lot of um, you know that's really fouled up our wetlands, which um, is will pose a significant threat to our fisheries if we don't pay attention to these things. So. Multi-prong, like we have so many problems. What am I going to do? And that's when uh, you know we came up with various things like a what um, well, we came up with the, the John Besh Foundation, which is funding microloan programs for farmers. Um, and I would like to open that up to farmers, fishers, crabbers, you name it. Um, protecting our foodways again, people that can't through con- uh, conventional means acquire the capital that they need to uh, continue or to expand their um, farming or fishing operations, have a place that they can come to for that. And not only that, but we've partnered with um, Tulane University's uh, Master of Business uh, School to give these farmers and fishers the business acumen that they need to achieve their financial goals and make sure that those loans are paid back so that they can be doled out to others. Um, Then we looked at the human side of this, and uh, it was interesting. that I'm walking through the kitchen one day and I'm looking around. That, that why don't we have why do you know, all our cooks look like me? Where are the black cooks? Because this is a historically African American community. Why aren't black people applying at my restaurants? And don't and, and it really came down to a lot of people within that community had no idea of the possibilities. Of, and the of, the, of the career path the hope of mm-hmm. um of, of you know a chef these days can do much better than um
1: just being a cook in a fast be, food restaurant
2: yeah that it doesn't have to end with just becoming you know this, with an entry-level job a living paycheck to paycheck that you can prosper but to do that you need training okay. and you need people that under you know that value your uh, human dignity and that 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 value your humanity, period. And so that's when I partnered with one of your graduates, um, Jessica bride Marin, who truly felt the same way. We met in an airport crossing paths and she said, what if? And I said, what if? And then we put our heads together and created a, a scholarship um, called Chef's Move, where I had worked with a number of outreach programs and still do in New Orleans. And require that all of our chefs work with these outreach programs. So it's just not me, but it's all of us together trying to lend a hand to the to the people within the community that need help and that need a helping hand and need a little bit of mentorship. And through these outreach programs like Cafe Reconcile, Cafe Hope, um, Liberty's Kitchen, for that matter, they're um, they're programs that offer training just on a very rudimentary level and life skills classes, just trying to get people in. Back to work. Period. Um, those are great, but what happens with a person with the tenacity and the smarts and um, with the drive that would that aspires more out of life than just that entry level position? They get kind of you know they're lost. Culinary schools are so darn expensive now, and I, I know for good reason, but but they are. And so you're paying um, exclusive college tuition prices. To, to go in, into a field that essentially, at best, is going to pay you about $10 an hour when you graduate. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's hard. That's a hard nut for a lot of people to swallow. And so I started thinking about this, and what we would have to do is create this scholarship for those people that were kind of, that, that had much more potential. And um, so we started the process here with uh, the uh, ICC in hopes of exposing people to a, a bigger world, mm-hmm. to broadening the horizons, taking them from the neighborhood New Orleans, bringing them to Manhattan. Yeah,
1: I know, and, it's wonderful. And that.
2: then the mentorship that yeah. takes place, and that, have people like Marcus Samuelson reaching out to, to offer um, help, and having people like Aron Sanchez offering help to um, young minorities that need to see that there are other people in the field that are doing great things. Mm-hmm. And it's just not about making money, of course, but just.
1: Tell, tell our listeners how they
2: can contribute. Well, we would love it if you would go to, <laughs> if you would, you can look us up online yeah. at um, com, or you can go just direct to um, uh, Chef. Chef's Move. Um, look us up, we're there, we'll, we'll make it more than easy for you to, to uh, donate and just know that you know, all of us are called, I think, to make a change in our uh, in our own neighborhoods, and um, this is just an example of what we're doing. That's really, um, I think, changing lives for the better. Well,
1: oh, it's been great to have you here today. I wish we could go on and on. I
2: know, as you can see, I'm kind of passionate about this. I subject. can see.
1: So, can I tell you one bad joke before we leave? Uh oh. Okay. How, how can you tell when you're in a Cajun zoo? <laughs> You have the recipe by the Latin name.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's bad.
1: (laughs) That's bad. Well, thanks uh, thanks again. And uh, I I want to thank um, uh, John Bash for being here today. And uh, a shout-out to our producers. And um, we'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.